Welcome to the House of Horrors podcast, where each week we dissect problems real estate investors have faced, how they navigated it, and of course, what you can do to avoid ending up in their shoes. Hey, y'all, it's your host, Bonnie, and we are prepping for the big workshop coming up this Wednesday on October 26th here in Bonnie Land. And if you haven't yet saved your seat, you can do so at bonniegallum.com forward slash profit. Plus, just for registering, you'll get access to my 15-page workshop, workbook, and asset protection self-assessment. This workshop is unlike anything I've ever done before, and it's super interactive, but most importantly, it's about profit. Uh, Not one of us got into real estate investing to sit around and stress all day about getting sued. We brought that first investment property because we had a financial goal in mind. Maybe it was to work less or work not at all. Uh, Maybe it was to create generational wealth or be able to live anywhere in the world. And so I want my education to be in alignment with your goals. There's enough snake oil salesmen selling ridiculous asset protection structures. I just want to share a no frills, easy to implement legal and property management education. And I'm going to do that through this brand new workshop. I really hope I'll be seeing you there. We've already had hundreds of registrants sign up and it's it's going to be a lot of fun. You can save your seat over at bonniegallum.com forward slash profit or use the link right in the show notes. And let me tell you guys, like everything I create for real estate investors, whether it's this brand new workshop, my legal checklist guides, this podcast, all of it has been inspired by my experiences, my clients' experiences and my landlord law school students, even you know people who will come up to me after speaking events, which is really the, the nexus of this whole podcast episode. Because ever since I hung my shingle about four years ago now, I kept this running list of what problems investors came to me with. And if you're in my Good Bones Facebook group, you've probably answered that question, like what is your number one legal concern going on right now? And One of the problems that stuck out to me early on as an attorney and has kind of been like a consistent theme uh, since then was this feeling of like helplessness that house hackers had. And I'm not saying that like they're down in the dumps, far from it. Uh, Most house hackers that I know are like really proud of their investing style and their housing situation and wouldn't change it for the world. And I'm right here riding alongside that. But when I would stand in front of them and like talk about asset protection at like a local RIA or something, they'd, you know, quietly come up to me at the end of the presentation and say like, but what about me? Like, what am I supposed to do? Like LLCs aren't in the cards. Uh, What else is there for me? And whether LLCs aren't, you know, in play because you're using FHA financing or you don't have enough cash to put 25 or 30% down on a commercial loan product, or you just don't want to use an LLC uh, due to like financing cons, like having less favorable interest rates and having less favorable uh, loan terms, like the length of the loan term that comes alongside it. Like those are all really valid reasons to be real estate investors without having an LLC. Um, One does not require the other. And so what I saw was that these investors were either writing off asset protection themselves or had attorneys write it off for them, saying there's nothing else that you can do. And it was in those conversations with house hackers, many of which I'm happy to call friends and clients and students at this point, but that's what led me to create Landlord Law School because I realized that investors, not just house hackers, thought that asset protection was LLCs, period. Like, okay, maybe throw in like a trust or something, but that was it. And so if you weren't using one of those things, then you just weren't participating in asset protection. (laughs) And 
In reality, though, those types of entities don't do half of what I think investors expect that they will. They're almost never used properly. And there's just so, so, so much more different things that investors can do, especially do on their own with like out the assistance of an attorney um, to create like this ecosystem of protection. And like maybe it's other attorneys' egos where they're just like, if I can't make money off of this advice in some way, then I'm not going to give it to you, which is a shame because it's, I think, left a lot of people unnecessarily exposed. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the way that house hackers can protect themselves because they seem to have been given the boot by most attorneys. And it's like, if I don't have an LLC or you're not going to buy one from me, I can't help you. And that makes me so mad. It makes me so mad because there's actually, like I said, a ton of things you can be doing to protect your assets, protect your income, protect your time. And today we're going to focus on assets uh, because I've seen house hackers struggle <laughs> with their options here so, so much. But even if you're not a house hacker, maybe you just own properties in your personal name and you want to you know, learn about like, I don't want to say LLC alternatives, but like what else is out there? Um, or maybe you do have an LLC and you just want to further tighten up the ship, then stick around because the three tips I'm going to talk about today will help you cover your tushy if and when things do hit the fan. And let's get started right off the bat with my favorite desert island piece of asset protection, which is, drumroll please, insurance. Y'all, you know I love insurance. It is such great bang for your buck. Not only can it pay out like the potential settlement, it will also defend you. Yep, that's right. Insurance will give you attorneys. I cannot stress this one enough. I've had, you know, unfortunately several clients get sued over the years. Not always like their fault. Like sometimes you just get brought into things. Um, but the insurance, they, they'll call me and I'm so flattered about that, that they're like, hey, Bonnie, I, I think I'm going to get sued. Can you help me with this? And I'm like, hold up before you pay me like some big, huge retainer, your insurance might be able to cover this. Now, let me tell you off the bat that there's a ton of situations out there that insurance just doesn't cover it. I'm I'm sorry. Like just I can off the bat of, of my head, I can tell you like insurance isn't going to cover you. Like if there's a breach of contract, insurance is not going to cover you in the event like of alleged fraud. Insurance is not going to cover you if there's a partnership just like the, the list goes on and on. I don't need to sit there and rain all over insurance's parade. It has its limits, but it's also incredible bang for your buck. I mean, where else do you get, you know, something that will pay out a settlement and provide you legal defense uh, during the lawsuit? Nothing else does. And so that kind of stuff helps maintain what I think of is the most important thing, which is your net worth. We don't want to be constantly losing more money than we're making. And an insurance is a really important way to do that. And I want to talk about two important types of insurance, uh, particularly when it comes to house hackers. The first is homeowner's insurance. If you bought this house, if you bought this property with any sort of financing, which frankly, just most house hackers do. I, I don't see a lot of cash <laughs> cash house hackers out there, but there might be. It may just be something that's particularly difficult to do um, in you know the Northeast where I'm located. But even if you did, chances are you're cash out, like refining it to, to pay yourself back. <laughs> but anyway, homeowner's insurance. It's required if you've got any sort of financing on the property, but you should have it anyway because again, cheap, great bang for your buck. But huge caveat that um, I've seen some house hackers kind of miss is disclosing things to your insurance company. Everybody knows insurance companies love to take premiums, hate to pay out uh, on that policy. And so 
you have to make sure that there's not a loophole that they're going to find and say, you know what, you didn't follow the rules of your policy. We actually don't have to cover you. And what I've seen happen is particularly in house hacking situations where you're renting by the room, like you've got a roommate, um, as opposed to like multifamily house hackers, where this is, it's very obvious. There's a tenant in the property, there's multiple units, you're in one, uh, someone else is in the other. But two things that I see pop up. The first actually is with the multifamily situation. When you leave that property and it's no longer owner-occupied, let your insurance company know that. It's a different rate, it's going to be more expensive, that's gonna stink, but your insurance is actually gonna insure you, and that's what matters at the end of the day. So if you have an owner-occupant policy, you are owner-occupying it, that changes, you move out of that property at some point, let your insurance company know. But the number two situation that I see pop up a lot, and this happens um, if you are renting by the room or perhaps you're using the property as an Airbnb, if you're traveling a lot when you're not there, you got to disclose that to your insurance company. And yes, (laughs) just like when you move out, it is going to cause a bump to your insurance policy. But the good news is, is you're actually going to be covered for the stuff that like you want to be covered for. So if that tenant uh, or that Airbnb guest causes damage, causes a flood, set the place on fire, like whatever the case may be, or they just get hurt on the property, like don't forget about that bomb, um, then the policy is going to cover you. And that's what we want. We don't pay insurance premium for funsies to like check that box off every month. Like we pay it because we expect to be covered in the event that there's a problem. But you've got to make sure you're playing the game with the insurance companies. So two things. You've got rent by the room, you've got Airbnb situations going on. Make sure your insurance company knows that. But also if it goes from an owner-occupied property to not, you got to let them know that as well. The next insurance policy that is really important and I think talked about a lot, but I'm not sure how much it's honestly purchased. Like we all, it's umbrella policies. We all love to talk about them, but I don't know how many of us actually have them. Like it's one of those things that's like, oh yeah, I could get that. I know it'd be a good idea to do that, but did you actually ever purchase it? Um, And I have found that that answer is really kind of often no. It's like perpetually on the to-do list, but never actually purchased. And umbrella policies are, they're great. They're great. They will go in excess of your other personal lines of insurance for things that happen as like personal activity. So that means they will cover you in excess of your insurance policy on your house. They will also cover you in excess of your auto policy. And let me tell you, auto policies, as you guys know, and I've talked about it before, one of the most common uh, tort lawsuits, meaning personal injury type of lawsuits, they stem from car accidents. I know all the other asset protection attorneys out there love to make it seem like it's slip and falls in front of 123 Main Street, which happens to be your property. It's not. It's car accidents, guys. And so how do we make sure that the fender bender that happens on the highway doesn't lead to something happening on your rental property? That is what insurance policies like your auto, and then on top of that, an umbrella policy can help cover you. Now, the common question that I get, and we go into this a little bit more depth inside of Landlord Law School, but is like, how much umbrella should you have? And I think the higher of your net worth or $1 million is like a rule of thumb to go by. Um, I kind of made that up in consultation with another client. And the reason of that is for two reasons. So, 
let, let me just give you an example. So if the equity in your properties is like a hundred or $200,000 equity, and you've got 30,000 sitting in the bank. So let's say net asset value is like 230. We're going to round that up to a million dollar policy. We want the greater of your net worth or a million dollars. And why is that? For a few reasons. One, umbrella policies are just cheap. <laughs> uh, to go from like a $100,000 policy to $500,000 policy to a million dollar policy, you will see those prices just go with the million. And the reason why is because you wanted to actually like cover you in excess. <laughs> and so we're talking about these catastrophic types of situations, which I mean, once you get a million dollar judgment, that is, you know, statistically far more likely than a $2 million judgment, which is statistically far more likely than it. Like once you start adding like multiple, multiple zeros, like these types of lawsuits are really, really, really rare. Um, again, I know a lot of asset protection attorneys make it seem like houses are bursting into fire. It was your fault. And, you know, everybody's suing everybody for, you know, all these stats. Like that's not really what happens most of the time. Um, but having a million dollar judgment, you'd be surprised. Like a fender bender could lead to, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in like personal injury damage if that person has like spine and back injuries. Um, I can tell you myself, I had a car accident. Oh gosh, how long? How, it was in 2015. It was in 2015. We were in a car accident. Some guy ran uh, a red light and we T-boned them, but it was their fault because they ran the red light. And I broke a rib and I had, you know, some, you know, neck issues. I had to go to PT for several months. And that itself, fractured rib, PT for several months, was over a $30,000 judgment that I got from that. And so things add up really quick. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Thing, pain and suffering adds up really quick. And so I wouldn't, you know, do like a $100,000 policy because it doesn't take much to get there. Um, now, you're also going to want to make sure that your umbrella policy covers all of your personal assets. You got to disclose them. And that's, you know, can kind of fall through the tracks. Like if you've got multiple rental properties in your personal name, like talk with your insurance broker. Like sometimes these forms are like, what's your address? Here it is. Here's your uh, auto policy. And then they they don't really push. And house hackers are like, we're an unusual circumstance. Uh, home uh, Real estate investors are unusual. And so push that conversation with your insurance broker to make sure you have the appropriate conversation and the appropriate coverage. Next up, the next thing that is crucial, do not pass go crucial, is for house hackers is your lease. And the lease is the cornerstone of your investing business, whether you're a house hacker or not. It's how you can reliably collect your rent, enforce that in court, and be able to enforce like your possessory interest in this property. It's also how you set your terms and your policies for appropriate use of that property. And no, that does not belong in a welcome packet. It belongs in your lease. And, you know, never more do terms and policies get felt more than when you're living literally next door to your tenant as a house hacker does. Oh, Nellie, you find out you need like a tighter pet clause when the tenant shows up with a bird who squawks at night and your lease just talks about, you know, pet rent kind of generally or that driveway. You know, it would seem like common sense that the driveway was for like your cars, not the tenant's boat and their RV, but your lease just says driveway is to be shared by both tenants of the property. <laughs> I have had a lot of fun making like smart, actually like 
productive leases with people and especially with house hackers um, because no one knows the quirks, the headaches better than house hackers. But the key is to like reflect on that and get that stuff down into your lease. Don't just write it off as like, oh, this is a pain in the butt tenant who's going to vacate in a few months. Like make sure that never happens again or there or at any other property with lease terms. Investing in a customized lease is something I recommend every single investor do. Screw the bigger pockets one. Don't use your buddy's borrowed lease. Pretend that that few hundred dollar lawyer fee that you're going to pay is a home inspector or an appraisal fee. Like these are not things you would ever skip during a transaction. So don't skip out on this CYA stuff after you own the property. And full disclosure, I review and update my lease every single year, every single year, <laughs> because the laws change. Problems may pop up and long gone are the days where I'm fooled twice. Like I, I'm not ashamed to say that. Like my leases have, they're not like encyclopedic. Like I don't want to make it seem like I'm just adding all sorts of like nonsense to my leases at all times, but there is constant tightening of languages. Um, and that should be something that every investor does. <laughs> if you obviously don't have the legal skills to add those terms to your leases, then, you know, pay an attorney for a half hour of their time to be like, hey, these are the types of things that went wrong in my business this year. How can we craft these into, you know, two or three sentences? Like these do not need to be page long terms. Like it's a little paragraph um, to be able to kind of prevent these things from happening again. And inside of Landlord Law School, I have a lease audit and some of my favorite lease terms like punting the plumbing problems that the tenant caused actually to the tenant and, you know, midnight lockouts. Maybe it's just us as, you know, student rental owners where, you know, people are getting drunk and locking themselves out at, you know, midnight or whatever. But we've had to get tight on those terms, let me tell you, <laughs> or at least make it worth our while. And I I pull back the curtain, I share that stuff with you inside of Landlord Law School. And speaking of, you know, keeping things formal, getting things, making things legit, communication, guys, let's talk about communication for a second. I like to consider my approach to, uh, friendly formality with, you know, house hackers, though, things can swing a little bit too much towards friendly, though. And I get it. Like these people, your tenants are your neighbors and things are going to get said in passing. Things are, you know, things can feel personal. Tenants can feel underfoot or in the way, and you can feel that way to your tenants. Um, but keeping things formal is really important so you don't use or lose any important rights. And that can be as simple as like sending a quick follow-up email. No, not a text message, guys. You know that. But if you haven't listened to episode 65 of the podcast where I rant and rave all about why we should not be communicating with our tenants by text message, go back and listen to episode 65. But I get it. Like, I get that it can feel ridiculously obnoxious to communicate with someone, especially a neighbor that way, like especially one who you maybe have a good relationship with. But it's important that things do not get lost in translation. And I've seen that happen frequently. And it's usually almost always with house hackers uh, where something gets said in passing and the other party relied on it. And perhaps they were, you know, mistakenly relied upon it, but they did. And so let me give you an example of that. Um, this was a situation where a tenant said in passing to the house hacker that they're not going to renew the lease. Um, but behind the scenes, the lease says that notice has to be given in writing. 
but that the tenant is entitled to renewals. The landlord then begins to market the property, uh, perhaps even signed a new lease, <laughs> and time goes by before the actual renewal deadline hits. This was like a 30-day renewal, and it was like 65, 70 days out where the tenant says this to the landlord. Um, but in that time before the 30-day renewal deadline, the tenant realizes that maybe they actually can't find a better place and they'd like to stick around. And so they tell the landlord, actually, I'm going to stay. We're going to renew this bad boy. And this may sound crazy, right? But I can tell you it happened to a client of mine and it was a really tough pill to swallow because not only was the tenant going to pay the new tenant was going to pay a lot more money, but the current tenant was right. (laughs) They had a renewal right, and we kind of had to unwind the other, you know, supposedly incoming tenant situation. Um, And it was something that thankfully, you know, worked out pretty well in the end. I mean, it was frustrating to go through it, but like nobody, you know, ended up loitering up and it didn't turn to a fight. It was, you know, there was definitely some frustration. And now there's, you know, extra frustration and resentment because you're living next to this person who you felt kind of screwed you over a little bit. But it's really, you know, important. That was like the classic example to me of how like things just sometimes get said in passing and it it can spiral from there. And these types of situations just happen more with house hackers because you're just around your tenants more by nature. And sometimes you bump into them and things are sad. And some things like, look, like if someone says like, hey, I signed for your FedEx package, like that doesn't need to be memorialized. Like use your common sense, use your best judgment here. But in the situation that I just described, like what would I have done there? I probably would have said something like told the tenant, like, hey, can you just shoot me an email real quick confirming that you don't want to renew so I have that for my records? Boom done. Not too socially awkward, right? Like, uh, And I think everyone involved probably would have gotten that at the moment, but there was still this gray. It wasn't even a gray area. It was just the reality. Like they didn't follow the protocols of the lease. The landlord didn't really go by that. And they ended up in this pickle. But I think that also kind of shows you that like sometimes asset protection isn't always about like someone coming after you. Sometimes you just want to avoid stepping in it, you know? And that goes whether you're a house hacker or not, you know? And in some, like, when entities are off the table, either by necessity or by choice, like, you've, you've got to use other types of asset protection. And that means using defensive tools. And, you know, in this situation, I think with house hackers, insurance is the best way to go. But also balance that with offensive tools to like nip that like drip, drip, drip of wasted money and like headaches that just sometimes feel like they're on autopilot as a landlord and definitely feel a little bit more personal when you're living with your tenants. (laughs) And so if you would like to go deeper with me on ways that you as a landlord can increase your cash flow without adding more properties and also decrease those legal headaches, then I invite you to join me in the workshop happening this Wednesday. You can save your seat at bonniegallum.com forward slash profit and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss next week's episode, which is all about what your real estate attorney leaves on the table. I will be pulling back the curtain a bit on my own industry and it's going to be a bit spicy, guys. You're not going to want to miss it. Uh, But that is it for this week's episode. I'll see you here same time, same place next week. And I hope to see you at the workshop. Bye for now. 
Thanks so much for listening to the House of Horrors podcast. Make sure to follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can also check out all of our podcast episodes, show notes, links, and more at bonniegallum.com forward slash podcast. You can learn more about legally protecting your portfolio and take my free legal workshop, The Three Legal Myths, Preventing You from Securing and Scaling Your Portfolio, and of course, what to do instead at bonniegallum.com. And to stay connected and follow along, follow me on Instagram at bonniegallumesq and send me a DM to say hi. Thank you for listening to the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast player to make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes. Now this lawyer's got to drop the fine print real quick. This podcast is educational and not intended to be legal tax or investing advice for you. Please speak with a local professional for specific advice unique to you and your situation. That's it for this episode. Bye for now.